If you have your Bibles, please get them and turn with me to the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation, and I'd like to read beginning at verse 11. After such a beautiful song by the choir and by Larry and by the quartet, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I'm hesitant to even preach on what I'm going to preach tonight, but the Lord's laid this on my heart, and I want us to think together uh, about the truth that is unveiled here in Revelation 20, and we'll read beginning at verse 11 and read down through verse number 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Satan has persuaded mankind for centuries that there is no future punishment and that there is no time nor day ahead when man will stand accountable before the God of creation. But that particular lie of Satan is very fully, very fully dealt with in this passage of the Word of God. It is exposed. The lie, the big lie, is exposed. With the terrible stroke of a pen, John literally under divine inspiration describes this terrible and this frightening scene for us. In verse 11, if you'll notice carefully, there are some things that I want us to look at before I bring you the main point and the main heart of our message tonight. John describes uh, this particular scene. He first describes uh, the background. He shows us that there is a terrible fact. A great white throne, he declares, is set up. Amazing that the Lord would tell us it is a white throne. For Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
This particular white throne uh, literally seems to be dazzling uh, to the eye. It is a reflection of the very purity and the holiness of our God. And to such an extent that I believe even the angels shrink away from this throne that is set up. Guilty men literally have no place to hide at this time. There is no place for them to cower behind. All of the foolish delusions that men have believed about there being no judgment, no punishment for sin, and no accounting to God. All of that is behind now in John's vision. It is all gone. It is in the past. So here John describes for us first a terrible fact. And indeed, it is a terrible fact when you think of an hour when men who have rejected Christ and snarled at the very word of God and denied God's truth will stand before a holy God. Not only is there a terrible fact that John reveals in verse 11, but there is also seen a terrible figure. John as he looks upon this figure, he immediately knows him. He knows him to be our Lord. He sees the nail prints in his hand that cruel nails have left their scar upon. He sees the scars on the back of this one who sits in the throne. He sees, as it were, the spear wound in his side. What a terrible figure this is, undoubtedly, as John first glimpses this one. All of the marks that cruel, wicked, ungodly, unbelieving men left upon him are still there, And now they're standing before the one whom they have scarred, wounded, and nailed his hands to a cross tree. Men today have ignored him. They have denied him. They have cursed him. They have rejected him. They have sold him. But now he is and will be the judge of those who stand before him. What a terrible, what an awesome figure is this one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is there a terrible fact and a terrible figure, but notice also undoubtedly a terrible fear. To look upon the face of our Lord Jesus Christ is bliss to those who know him and have surrendered themselves, bowing at his feet and claiming him as their personal Savior. But to the ungodly who stand before him, it will be what I would consider the first agonizing stab of hell within their very heart and soul. John here tells us that the heavens and the earth have, have, have passed away. There is nothing that is left. 
the heavens, the earth has fled from the face of the one who is seated upon the throne. The universe itself is gone. There is nothing but a throne, nothing but a judgment seat, nothing but a God whom men will stand before and answer to. Everything stable, everything that's solid, Everything that is familiar in the universe, John seems to imply it is all gone. Every landmark, every stone, every hiding place no longer exists. Man stands in his nakedness and exposed before this holy God. There's nothing left but emptiness. There is nothing left but a throne a figure, a face, an awful cramping fear. But let me tell you one other thing that seems to be revealed here. And that is, there is a terrible fellowship. A terrible fellowship. John says that the dead, small and great, stand before God. There are some people in this world that are so vile That many a moral man, though unsaved, would not even consider being in his company. But here it is the dead, the unsaved, the lost, who have been brought forth to stand before the holy God. Little men and paltry women whose lives have been filled with meanness and pettiness, and selfishness, and peevishness, and inward lust, vulgarity, and greed. These are there, but they are standing in the fellowship with even the great men who with high hand have have rejected our Savior, and who have scorned God and His great love for man. Men like Alexander the Great and Napoleon. Men like Hitler and Stalin. Men like Al Capone and John Dillinger and some of the criminals that have been in the past. The the, uh, the, uh, uh, Dahmers and the Bundys. Men standing before God in the company with these that otherwise there would be no place of fellowship. All are standing before God, both great and small, both rich and poor, both learned and unlearned, both educated and uneducated. Men are brought now whether they want to be or not, they are brought before the tribunal of heaven itself and will give answer to the Most High God. John goes on to tell us in verse 12, and this is the heart of my message tonight. He said, when I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, the books, notice plural, the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. If I would ask you tonight, what do you consider to be the three most important books 
in all the world. I wonder how you'd answer that. Some, no doubt, would answer saying, well, the most important book to me is Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. Someone else may say, oh, the most important book to me is the books that tell a fella how to become rich, how to be wealthy. Someone else might say, Oh, the most important thing to me are those books on how to build my self-esteem. But are those really the most important books in life? I think of a dear black preacher who stood before his congregation and he said, there are three books. There's the hymn book, there is the good book, and there is the pocket book. The truth is, to many people, the pocketbook seems to be one of the most important books of all. But here the Bible tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes that God will at that time of judgment bring every work into judgment, whether it be good or whether it be evil, with every secret thing. Do you have anything secret that you don't want somebody to know about? My friend, in this moment of eternity, the very secrets of a person's heart will be revealed. Jesus said even, uh, the things that we whisper, he will judge us. The things that are whispered in the closets will be shouted from the very housetop. Now then, these three books I want you to think with me about. The three books, books, plural, another book, and the book of life. I believe that these three are very evident that will be at that time of judgment. You ever been to a court, to a room where there's a hearing, a trial? You'll see the lawyers bring in volumes of material. In other words, books of material concerning their client are concerning the one that they are ready to prosecute. The story is these three books are by far the most important to you now and especially in eternity. There is first of all the book of God that will be there. I believe this will be the very basis of God's judgment against man. The book of God. And I speak simply and primarily of this book that I hold in my hand. The precious word of God. Jesus said in John 12 and verse 28, listen to these words. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him. In the last day. Apparently then the book of God will be God's standard of judgment. Whereby he will judge all of the other things in a person's life. The word of God. The precious Bible that we hold. This book is the original if you please. It is called the truth. There are many other titles that you'll find in the scripture that describe the Bible. For example, the Word of God is referred to as the law, is referred to as the testimony, 
is referred to as the precepts of God. Is referred to as the statutes of God. Is referred to as the ordinances of God. The lamp of God is referred to as being pure and perfect and without flaw. It is indeed the revelation of God's truth to man. And the Lord has given us this book as a guide. We don't have to wait until we stand before a holy God and have God to judge us by this book if we would but judge ourselves by the standard that God has set and laid out in His precious Word. Now, there have been many books which claim to be God's book, but yet you'll find that they are not, though they may bear a similarity to this very book that you and I hold dear to our hearts. But you see, it takes one who knows the original in order to be able to discern a counterfeit. You do not discern a a dollar bill by comparing it to a monopoly one dollar bill. Listen, that's not the way. But yet you you know the counterfeit when you look at the true. And the Word of God is the original. The Word of God is the true. And thus men are, are, uh, will be sized up in the sight of God on the basis of God's Word. The Book of Mormon many follow, which is claimed to be the Word of God, but indeed is not the most ridiculous stories you'll ever read, even about the origin of the Book of Mormon, how ridiculous and how silly. A man goes up in Elmira, New York, and digs up some golden plates that nobody but he can translate. And he passes it on as God's Word here to us in the Western world. Oh, how foolishly men follow after that that cannot be proven to be the Word of God. There are multiplied millions who follow the book known as the Quran. They follow it religiously and claiming to be God's very Word. The Jehovah's Witness have their own Bible called the New World Translation. And yet again, you'll discover that there is no comparison to what is written in the New World Translation to the truth of God's Word. Then there are many modern versions, translations, perversions, I call them, paraphrases. And most of them are written to accommodate man in his own rebellion and in his own disobedience. I'll tell you one among many reasons why I hold to the old King James version of the Scripture. One reason, and that is this. The King James translation of the Scripture was never copyrighted. All of the others have been copyrighted. Do you know what that means? It means that they have been copyrighted in order for folks to make money. And that's what many of these modern perversions and translations have been placed out on the bookshelves and people buy them literally by the hundreds. And yet as I look at God's Word, 
I find many proofs that tell me it is not a book written by man nor of the wisdom of man but written by God to us. I think of the historical accuracy of the Bible. And yet there are those who come along in years past and they'll come along in days to come and they'll say, oh, there's no such place as this and there's no such man as that, only for some archaeologists to make a dig and discover that there was a place by that name, that there was an individual who bore that name and that title. And furthermore, I believe that you'll find the Bible is scientifically accurate. Scientifically accurate. Oh, modern science may grumble and gripe and knife and try to do away, but isn't it amazing how folks come back to the book sooner or later and they say, you know, the Bible is right after all, wasn't it? Scientifically correct. The longevity of this book. No other book has, has been out among men as long as the old Bible and yet the longevity of the book. I have books that I've read and I'm an avid reader of Louis L'Amour. I like Western stories. But you read one of them and you don't have to read it again. It's gone. And soon, I mean, the silverfish and the moths destroy it. But this old book, the Bible, has stood the storms and the assailing of many an infidel and many a skeptic and many a doubter. Ah, not only that, but the prophecies in this Bible. Great proofs of the Bible is its prophecy. How could any book prophesy 500 a thousand years prior and pinpoint a place, a thing, an event, and yet not miss it. Gene Dixon and all of the other psychics and, and Mama, who else? I started to say Mama Bell, but not Mama Bell. Thing. All of these psychics, they come up with all kind of predictions. But listen, when God's Word predicts something, you can bank on it. You can count on it. Then I think of what this book does to an individual personally that proves the fact that it is not an ordinary book. It wasn't a geography book that changed my life. It wasn't a science book. It wasn't a math book. It wasn't Latin. It wasn't Greek. It wasn't a book on economics. None of that changed my life. Here I was, a doubting infidel in my heart and saying, there is no God and, that, and listen, there is, there's nothing to this thing called religion and Christianity. But I'll tell you, this book and its truth penetrated my old doubting heart and changed me to the child of God that I am tonight and changed me that I'd serve Him with heart full of faith and with belief with all of my heart. No other book did that for me. And no other book has changed a drunkard to a sober man, a doper to a, straight, to, a, to a sober man. No other book has changed the prostitute into a pure woman. Oh, this Word of God will change. And then I think of the unity of the Bible. All of these 66 books, 40 different penmen, and yet everyone when he gives the accounts, 
dovetails with a writer who may have penned what he was penning many, many years earlier. 500 years between these 40 authors. And the truth that they give us dovetails and complements one uh, each other. Now then, today when they uh, stole Rachel's purse, I guarantee you there's been already a dozen tales on that. And uh, we, could, we could see an accident out here. I mean, everybody in this church. And I promise you there'd be a dozen or two dozen different stories about how it happened. But yet 500 years, 40 different men, and they're all in agreement with the truth that is given to us in this old book. So I tell you, this is the book, the standard by which God will judge men who stand before him at the white throne. I would tell you this, that this is not a judgment for the child of God. Uh, the, chi- the judgment for the child of God's over. We'll stand at the judge, what is known as the Bema, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. But that will not be a, a, a seat where we are judged to either go to heaven or hell. But it'll be a place where men and women who have known the Lord are rewarded for their service and for what they have done and for their obedience and faithfulness, their soul winning, their prayer life, and so forth. But this is a judgment seat, sure enough. A place, no, not where men come to argue with the judge. No, not a place where appeals can be made. There is no jury here. There is only one. And that is the God who knows all. He needs no jury. He needs no lawyers. He knows the truth about those who will stand before him. So at the great white throne, the unsaved are brought to stand before God. And therein will be determined, as you'll see it momentarily, their degree of punishment out in eternity. And there are degrees in punishment. Their degrees of reward in heaven all depended on what we do and how faithful we've been as far as heaven is concerned. And yet men will be judged at the white throne judgment determining the degree of their punishment. You see, men will then not be judged by the U.S. Constitution. You'll not be judged by the Bill of Rights. You'll not be judged by a book on philosophy. You'll not be judged by a book on psychology or science nor economics. You'll not be judged by um, the American Medical Journal. You'll not be judged by who's who nor a report card, but you'll be judged before God by this book. Now, if you want to know how it's going to come out, You ought to read this book and you'll find out what God says and what God expects and what he demands. So there will be the book of God, the Bible at this great white throne. And then there's what is known as the book of life, the book of life. And the dead were judged out of that book and out of those things which are written in the books 
according to their works. Mankind will be judged out of these books. In the book of life, I believe, is the record of man's life. It'll be a record like we call a diary, written down. Yes, God keeps books, and he never makes a mistake. He writes it down. He knows all about it. God's book of life. He therein records our motives. He records the actions of men. He records the attitudes of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, the works of the hands. So this very book, the book of life, wherein is recorded the works of man, these works will be scrutinized and compared by the book of God. The book of God, the standard And yet man standing before God hoping somehow, somehow that his life will prove sufficient for him to get into heaven. But say, the truth is works and the judgment of works always has to do in this case with the unsaved, the unregenerate. Our salvation is determined by grace through faith that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. But those who would think I can be a good enough person, I can try to keep the commandments, I can try to be a good citizen, and surely God will let me into heaven because of that. My friend, there is only one way into heaven, and that's through the blood-sprinkled way, through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man's book that records his works will never measure up to the standard of God's book, the Word of God. You see, this book always shows up the flaw that man has. And all men have a flaw. Think of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. The scripture says he was a mighty man. He's a fellow who was in command of others. He was a mighty man, a great man. And then the scripture says, but he was a leper. You know, you could buy what is pawned off and what you think is a very antique vase, or do they call them vase? Vase. But you buy that and you think it's okay. But you hold it up to the light. And you see there is a crack that's been kind of covered up. And you wouldn't ordinarily see that flaw unless you held it up to the light. The flaws of man will be exposed and revealed when he stands before this holy God. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, a very reputable man, but he needed to be born again. Religious man respected man, a learned man, a man who knew the scriptures of his day. And yet Jesus said, there's a flaw, Nicodemus. You must be born again. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, you know the commandments? And he ran down a list of those. And the young man said, all of these I've kept from my youth up. 
but held up against the light of truth, Jesus said, yet lackest thou one thing. It's missing. Now man may have in the record of his good works, good things, charitable deeds, kindness to neighbors, faithfulness in their vows. And yet, my friend, when man stands before God, that is not going to pass. The only thing that will pass is what you have done with Jesus Christ. You'll not be judged before God by the church roll book. The Lord's not going to say when we stand before him, hey, I wonder if the clerk down at Return Baptist would let me see the book and see if you're a member down there. Whether you are or not would make any difference. The fact is, there's another book that man's name must be in. And that's what we call the Lamb's Book of Life. Here is that book of life that we've just, or the book of life we just talked about. But the place where your name must be found is in the Lamb's book of life. Look, if you will, in chapter, uh, chapter 21 and look at verse 27 of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe the Lord doesn't have to wait until a sinner bows at an altar and asks Jesus to save him to get his name written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible teaches us that the Lord chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And I believe somebody said, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm called? I'll tell you how. If when God's Spirit moves in your heart and you respond to the Spirit of God's wooing, bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ, you can say, Hallelujah, I am one of God's chosen. And those who are rejected are those who have not responded to that divine call from the Lord. Indeed, the whosoever wills are those who are chosen. And the whosoever wants are those who are not. If there is a will, a desire, and a man comes to Jesus Christ, you can turn around and thank God that you are chosen in Him. How can you know then that your name is written there? You can know it on the basis of whether or not you have come to simple, altogether, fullness of faith in none other for your salvation than Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in anything else? It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus minus your mischief, but it's Jesus only. And this morning in the close of the message on the transfiguration, and they saw no man save Jesus only. He is our way to heaven. He is the way. He is the door. And if you've never trusted him with your heart, oh, listen, don't be so foolish as to imagine when you stand before God 
and the Lord reads the works of your life, then he's going to say, well, you were good enough, and you did enough good deeds, so I'm going to let you in. Oh, no. It'll not be that at all. It's not a time of a balancing scale between the good and the bad. But this judgment is a judgment for men and women who have rejected Jesus Christ and left him out of their life. And the dead were brought before him and they were cast into the lake of fire. There is a future judgment. There is, my friend, a hell as real a place as heaven is real. And men will spend eternity in the very judgment of God, the wrath of God, who have trampled under their feet the Son of God and counted the blood that He shed, the blood of His covenant, an unholy thing. I trust that you know Him and that we will stand not in this judgment, but we through faithfulness and service to God will stand at that rewarding place where the Lord says to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Let me ask you tonight because, and I ask this because there's a danger in taking things for granted. Sometimes we take for granted that members of our family, our friends, our loved ones, we take it for granted that they're saved. But you see, only that person knows whether or not they have received Christ as their Savior. How many of you here tonight can say, Pastor, I'm grateful to God that I have received Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm trusting in naught else but Him for my eternal abode in heaven. I'm glad that I know Him as my Savior. If you can say that, please say it by lifting your hand up good and high, will you? I know Him as my Savior. God bless you. Thank God for that testimony. Let's stand together tonight. Every head bowed. I look over this audience and far as I could see, everyone here lifted their hand to say I'm saved. But I want to tell you, and I wouldn't, I'm not saying this to doubt anyone's testimony, I want to tell you this. You can fool your mama, you can fool your daddy, you can fool your best friend, you can fool the preacher. But I'm talking tonight about a time and eternity, place, where there'll be no fooling, where there'll be no deception. For in that place, men will be judged by God's truth. Now, Father, I thank you for the testimony of the folks here tonight. And I pray that somehow you'll help us as thy people that have been saved to realize that though we, Lord, have escaped that white throne judgment, and that Jesus bore our judgment on the cross. And that thy word says to us, there is therefore now no judgment, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But, oh Lord, help us to be mindful that friends and loved ones that we know are headed for this awful 
terrible time when they shall give an account, oh, holy God, as to what they've done with the Savior. Awaken us, Lord. Give us a passion not only for Thee, give us a passion for souls that we can give them the gospel. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.